0: You're listening to Pastor Mike Greiner of Harvest Community Church in Catanning, Pennsylvania. We pray that you'll be challenged today as you listen to a sermon entitled RSVP, recorded on Sunday, August 5th, 2018. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org. Let's join Pastor Mike as he preaches. Hello, everybody. (laughs) Welcome to Harvest Community Church. If you're a first-time guest, I'm especially happy you're here. My name is Mike, and um, in case you don't know it, we have four locations, uh, four campuses, complete with our own campus pastors, worship teams, and all those things. And if you're at any of those four, great to see you, or for you to see me, I guess. <laughs> um, we also visit the, the, the jail every week with this worship service, and we even have a group who every Sunday morning, their time, worships using this, uh, this sermon all the way over in India. So we welcome all of you. Uh, in three weeks, we have our outdoor service in downtown Katanning, which means our our Friday night congregation from Katanning, as well as our Sunday morning, as well as Freeport, Indiana, and the Petroleum Valley. Now, if the folks from India or jail can get get here, we'd love to have you there too. Hey, I I uh, I don't normally. Uh, start out with current events, but before the sermon I actually want to talk a little bit about uh, current events today, Um, only because I think this this is a global current event, and big enough to impact the thinking of many people of what does the Bible say and what does Jesus teach about a very important subject. Um, And I do it gently, hopefully gently. I'm as gentle as a sledgehammer most of the time, but I'm going to This is me being gentle. I do this with my hand. That means gentle. Um, But I'm going to try. I do not want to pick on any denomination of Christianity uh, as a whole. However, the Pope um, this week uh, came out and declared that uh, capital punishment in all its forms is always wrong. It's always wrong and always needs to be opposed. Now, uh, you might think, why are we talking about that issue? Um, I'm really not concerned with the politics of the issue. Uh, in America, the justice system is uh, not necessarily perfect. It's good, but not perfect. And I would agree that a person with money is much less likely to have to worry about the death penalty than a person without money. It shouldn't be that way, but lawyers are what lawyers are, and they cost what they cost. And I, but I really don't want to get into that issue. The reason I think this issue matters, here's the, the hard part, is um, the, the Pope is the head of of, of the Catholic Church, which uh, can count as its following maybe up to a billion or so people, uh, is declaring that the Bible says the capital punishment is off-limits and wrong in all cases. Um, and and, and there's, there's a great deal of difficulty there. And, and what distinguishes a Protestant from a Catholic? Now, there are many Protestant denominations, and it's not time for church history. We'll just not worry about that now. But a Protestant from a Catholic is the position of the Scripture. Uh, for the Protestant, the position of Scripture is it's at the top, and everybody and everything bows to it. And so there's an accountability that comes. If I, were, for instance, were to teach that they should never have capital punishment, um, any of you could say, well, what does the Bible say? And you would either confirm or deny that, because I'm under it. Um, in the Roman Catholic tradition there's also an eastern Catholic but in the Roman Italian tradition um, popes sit as what's called the vicar of Christ meaning they literally represent Christ on the earth and they put the, therefore themselves equal to or even above the scripture but at least equal to but I'd say above because if the pope says it says something it says something and no one can question that and that's why on this particular issue uh, I, I just have to um, point out that Genesis 9 6 says, God, Noah, the flood's over. The boat is on a mountain and the door's open. The animals are leaking back out into the earth and doing what animals do. And Noah and his children and wife, their wives are setting up shop. And God says, Okay, second chance, human race. Here's the deal still multiply fill the earth. Just like Adam and Eve were told. Um, Still uh, take over the globe. It's yours. Eat the animals because you're going to get hungry. But don't allow the killing of human beings by either animal or mankind. If they do, they're accountable to me. Well, what happens if an animal or a human murders a human being? Genesis 9.6, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. This, um, I jumped on Twitter yesterday and just tried to jump in every conversation I could on this. I don't always do that, but I thought, well, let's stir some things up. Maybe, <laughs> sometimes you've got to put your voice out there. And um, somebody said, well, that's, that's the law of Moses. Actually, it isn't. That that isn't. Noah was born many centuries before Moses, many centuries before there were Jews. There was no law of Moses yet. This was the law for all mankind. Uh, A human being should be allowed to walk the earth safely without anyone threatening to kill them. It's just the way it's supposed to be. It's not that way, but it should be that way. What happens if someone does kill them? According to the scripture, because they are made in the image of God, that person needs to be punished. That's what you do with them and you kill them. Now, I realize there needs to be a justice system, therefore a government, somewhere between those two steps, right? (laughs) Obviously, the killed person doesn't kill them. Someone needs to make sure it's fairly administered and whatnot, and it could be debated whether that's done well anywhere, but it cannot be debated that it's supposed to be done, not from the Scriptures, no matter how learned you are. Uh, Many wrongly think, and I got this argument from many, that the New Testament somehow nullifies the government's role in administering justice. Um, and many quick quotes of thou shalt not kill, well I guess that's Old Testament, that is the law. Um, thou shalt not kill in Hebrew is not thou shalt not kill, it's thou shalt not murder. And murder is illegal killing. For example, if you have a United States soldier and he's sent to do his duty and he has to kill someone in the line of work, um, In a war, that's not against the law. But if that soldier comes home and and kills a civilian for no good reason, that would be murder. Murder and killing are not the same. One's illegal, one isn't, and it's thou shalt not murder. But then they point to the New Testament where Jesus says, uh, turn the other cheek, right? Whatever you'd have someone do to you, do unto them. It's very important, Christian, that you get this, okay? It's just good Bible interpretation to get this, God has mandates for you that are different for his mandates for human government. It's just a very simple idea, but it's often overlooked when people have almost any issue. God has certain mandates for the government and certain mandates for you. So you are not to take your own revenge and kill a person because they murdered your loved one. You may want to, but you're not to do that. However, the government is to do that they they answer to God in a different manner. Um, and, and this is shown when Jesus is asked, should we give this coin in tax, which would be loyalty to these foreigners? What did Jesus say? Give Caesar his due. Caesar's give it to him. He separated the two. And then um, Paul made it clear in Romans 13 when he said, rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad would you have no fear of the one who is in authority then do what is good and you will receive his approval for the government or in this case it's personified as a he is God's servant for your good but if you do wrong be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain he is the servant of God an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer so under Paul's instruction, the, the government still exists. He doesn't say Christians ignore the government, turn the other cheek. A government that turns the other cheek is a nation in chaos. If the cops come and, and somebody's beating someone, and you say, please stop them, and they say, no, we, don't, we just turn the other cheek when people beat other people. You would have chaos. People would break into a store and steal things. What should we do? Well, turn the other cheek. No, you want the police to actually catch the bad guy and return the stuff. Right? That's the government's job. And it doesn't stop at capital punishment. Now, I'm not a capital punishment warrior. I've never joined a capital punishment group. I, it's not my favorite political issue. You know. However, the reason I think it rises to the level of importance is because something bigger is going on. And that is, mankind is being devalued by mankind all over the world, and what the Pope did only further devalues mankind. But what's worse is he said that this is what's right, even though the Catholic Church has not taught that that was right, all the way up till this week. There's the problem with Popes over the Word instead of the Word over the Pope. You can't change. Either it was right last week and it's right this week or it was wrong last week and it's wrong this week. But the way it devalues humanity is, imagine your loved one gets killed. It's a horrible thing to imagine. Maybe some, you, some it has happened to you by murder. Imagine they capture the person who did the murder and that person is then let go. Found guilty and let go. You would say that's not just and you'd be correct. Because why? The value of the life taken. Well, what is the value of the life taken? Well, let's lock him in a prison for a year. And you'd say, one year for murdering my loved one? That's not just. Well, what is just? Well, if it's your loved one, you're going to be biased. You're going to be rough on this guy. You're going to be like, bury him up to his neck in fire ants and run him over with a lawnmower. You're going to come up with weird things, you know. I've heard it. But that's not just. That's torture. What's just? Lock him in a room for 20 years. Is that just? 20 years worth the value of your loved one? It really depends on how valuable a human is. According to God, there's nothing more valuable on the earth than a human being. Therefore, the punishment must be greater than any other punishment, and there's no greater punishment than capital. So capital punishment is consistent in the Bible with the idea that a man or a woman is more valuable than anything on the planet. The argument goes the other way. Well, you obviously don't value them, you're killing them. That's not so. The Bible says, it says in Genesis 9, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And here's the reason why. For God made man in his own image. God does not require this of an animal that kills an animal. If a lion chews to death a gazelle or another lion, or if a wild horse slays a young horse, which they do, by the way. It's horrible to watch, but National Geographic can freak you out, but they do. That horse is not to be put down. As for its crime, nor locked up because what it killed is no, not that valuable. But a human is. This is what the Bible teaches. Um, as Christians, you're going to run into this. It can get so complicated, but I, I just couldn't let it pass without addressing our church and, and, and saying that no man no matter how revered and honored he is, has the right to change what the Scripture says to make it go with the times. A Christian church can be wrong. A Christian denomination could be wrong. They could be wrong on purpose, or they can be wrong by ignorance, and then they do need to be corrected. But the truths that are true are always true and always have been true, which is why I say to the people, if you're a guest who go to this church, if I ever break out some kind of new ideas, you need to stop me. There's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new. <laughs> the, 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 the teachings have been given to us from the Old Testament and the New Testament, and that's it. Boom. Um, anyway, I, ho- I hope that helps you. I hope I was gentle. I'm not trying to pick on anybody, but we just want to address it. Let, let's get to our, our parable today. We are going through parables for the summer. Matthew 22, 1 to 14. It's a rather long Parable. So I'm just going to read it quickly, and then we'll go through it. Ready? Matthew 22, verse 1 to 14. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And, his, and he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fattened calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Who wouldn't go, by the way? This was before refrigeration. How often do you think you got the fattened calf? You know, go. He says, come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and they went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants treated them shamefully, and killed them. Well, the king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And the servants went out into the roads, and they gathered all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. All right, there's the story, interesting story, a lot going on. Jesus says, that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. Well, if that's what the kingdom of heaven is like, let's look closer and see if we can figure this one out. Th- this parable is kind of neat because it deals with the salvation of individuals, it deals with the salvation of, of one nation, and it deals with the salvation of the entire world. And, and, and let me, I'll, I wanna, I'll unfold that as we go. First note that the king obviously represents God the Father. We know there's one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and God the Father is the King. The wedding feast is the return of Christ and the celebration that comes after that. When, when Jesus comes back, there's judgment, and, you know, we get into the stories of Armageddon and all the wild, cool stuff, but after all that's done, there's a celebration, and that's the wedding feast. The Son is obviously Jesus, uh, this is the story, really, the whole Bible is the story of God getting a bride for his son, and, and it's a rescue mission. The, the bride is in trouble. Um, she is a slave to sin, she's a slave to the devil. She's attacked, and she's wicked and dirty, and she needs to be rescued from this sorry world where everybody dies. So, God sent his son. Right? This, is, this is the great story of the world. God sent his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Why did he need to send his son? Because we were in trouble. This life has good parts. It lies, this life has bad parts. But no matter how good this life is, like Jim Morrison said, no one here gets out alive. It ends in tragedy. It ends in death. And it ends in punishment, spiritually, for sin. We need it rescued. The the groom is Christ. The ones he rescued is the bride, us. How did he rescue us? By coming in himself as one of us, but without sin. When he died for our sins, he not only paid for our sins, but this is the amazing part he destroyed death and the power of sin themselves. Right? He goes to the grave and in something like magic. It's not magic, but it's too much for my brain to understand. Death is done away with. And that can be applied to you and to you and to me. We could be rescued from the grave. But not not only that, my wickedness is done away with, paid for. Satan, my enemy, is defeated. All that happened at the cross. And that's how he rescued and he raised from the dead. And he promised, I'm coming back. And when I do, you're going to raise up the new bodies too. And we're going to have a wedding feast. I'm the groom. You people who are the church of Jesus Christ in all ages, in all times, all denominations, everyone who believed, you are going to be the bride. It's a rescue mission. Let's summarize that. Because really, that, that's the scope of this parable. All of that. It's kind of taken for granted. So let's, let's summarize it in our notes. Throughout the history of man... God has been inviting and collecting people into his church. Just like in that parable, he's inviting people to the wedding feast. Jesus died to pay for the sins of his bride. One day, Jesus will return to earth and separate his faithful ones out of the rest. You might want more details on that. Go back a few sermons. We had some good parables about separating, you know. <laughs> you go here, you go here. This one really isn't about that so much. It, it assumes it. And that'll initiate an age of joy with a wedding banquet. The whole Bible ends with a, with a wonderful wedding. The, the bi- History ends, according to Scripture, with a beginning. Right? The last chapter of the book... The most exciting chapter of the book doesn't end the story, it starts the story. That, that's what the Bible says. We begin a new story and it's a better story, it's a better life. This good life ends, a better life begins. One where people don't fight because there's no sin nature in them causing them to envy and hate and compete. And there's no, no one attacking and there's no wicked one tempting and you have an eternal body that doesn't need, it, it doesn't need medicine. It doesn't need bandages. It doesn't need hospitals. It doesn't need ambulances. You don't need firefighters. Now, we love all those people here. The, but, but they're not permanent fixes. This is the promise of the end. I want to read to you from Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet. Came seven centuries before Christ. I love to quote him. I quote him a lot in the parable he's one of the inviters he's one of the ones who invites look what he says about the end of all things and on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all nations or all peoples same word a feast of rich food a feast of well aged wine if you die in Christ and you're a vegan you're going to be so psyched to find out you didn't have to be I don't know what that food's going to taste like, but it's going to be good. The rich food full of marrow, from the bones, aged wine, well refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain. Look, look, look what's going to be swallowed up. This is what the prophet said. What's going to be swallowed up? The covering that is cast over all peoples. What's the covering that is cast over all? The veil that's spread over all nations. What's the veil? He shall swallow death. That's the veil. Gone forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Not only do you live, but you'll want to be alive. (laughs) And the reproach of his people will be taken away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. What a great joy awaits us. That's the beginning place of this parable. The king says, Come to my feast. This is what he's talking about. The world as we always knew it should have been. So now let's break down the parts that shouldn't take long of this parable. It starts out with the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, Jesus, and he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. These servants are the prophets, all the way back from Moses on to Daniel and Ezekiel and all the rest. And, and, and there's a wedding feast. This is a good invitation. The king wants you to come to a wedding feast. This isn't one of those weddings that's boring. Some weddings are great, some great parties, some are boring. No one says they're boring at the time, and you'll never get me to say which ones I've ever thought were boring, but some are kind of a drag. You just want to go home and cut the grass. (laughs) You laugh because you know it's true. But there are some you can't wait for. That's this one. This is a party. This is Disney World at a wedding. But it goes quickly from joy to sorrow. Look at verse 3. He sent his servants to call those who are invited to the wedding feast. You'd think they'd be like, hot dog, I'll be there. But they would not come. So he sent his other servants. He's being insulted. He's their king, right? He's not just some guy. Saying, tell those who are invited. See, I've prepared my dinner. My ox, my fat and calves have been slaughtered. Everything's ready. Come to the wedding feast. Look, they not only paid no attention and went off, one to his farm and another to his business, While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. In other words, there's people who turn away from God just because they're doing their thing already. Yeah, 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 heaven, God, Jesus, all that good stuff, forgiveness of sins. I'm busy. I'm playing. I'm in a sport. I'm in a business. I'm busy. I got a life. I'm raising my grandchildren. I got too much to do. Don't really need them. But then there are others who get mad. And they killed them. That, that's clearly speaking of how the Jews, there was always some who believed, and others would kill the prophets. The majority never did. They'd kill the prophets. They treated, shame, treated them shamefully. The king was angry. He sent his troops and destroyed those murders and burned the city. Okay, this is hard, but this is covering all history. <laughs> Going back from about 700 B.C., all the way to the end of time till the Lord returns and speaking very clearly about Israel Moses their great prophet said in the law love the Lord your God and he told them over and over if you love your God your nation will prosper Israel um, they had uh, mega shirts on make Israel great again <laughs> and um, and <laughs> and the movement was stick with your God. Stick with your God. But they never stuck with their God. If you read the Old Testament story, it's a story of a people who come from Abraham, Israel. And Israel, once they are brought into their nation out of Egypt, they will not behave and be thankful towards the God who blessed them. That's the whole point of the Old Testament. They're constantly saying, we want other gods. We want other gods. You're not good enough for us. These gods let us party. These gods let us do this. We don't need you. So starting in 700 B.C. and then again in about 600 B.C., he pulled them all off their land and there's been a great time of suffering for the Jews from then until now. It's very controversial to say this. Never want to say to people who are victims that this is your own fault because it sounds merciless and we should never be merciless towards victims of other humans. People who do evil to the Jews um, are crossing God himself, right? If my kid, uh, if one of my kids freaks out says i hate you i hate your name dad i don't like you i curse you i spit on your your grave or whatever i just can't stand you and he he burns my house down steals my car and just does everything to alienate himself from me me and him have trouble but if a bad guy comes and kills my kid i don't care i'm still more mad at the bad guy because that's my kid and i'm just a sinful human and you're probably like that too How much more God? I mean, those who have abused the Jews throughout history will face the angry punishment of a very angry God. Nevertheless, the Bible's clear. The punishment ends when they honor their God. The trouble ends. And as a nation, they haven't. A remnant have. The apostles are Jews. They did. So let's... Write this sad story down too in our notes. The servants who invited the people to the banquet are the prophets of the Old Testament crying out to Israel to repent and to return to their God. The Jews to this day are a great people. They're a great people, but they're a small number on the earth. They've always been a small number on the earth. They're still a small number on the earth. But they're disproportionately talented, disproportionately wealthy, disproportionately blessed. Most Jews make more money than most people. Most, I mean, it's, it's just true. This has nothing to do with anything. <laughs> but, but among the Jewish culture, they produce more artists, more scientists that do things they, in the field of medicine, um, arts, business, You can see the hand of blessing on Jews. And you should never envy it. You should never (laughs) resent it. Instead, you should be thankful. Because it shows God's promises still to his people and always has been to his people. He's never forgotten them. But he is waiting for them. And this isn't in the parable, but let me tell you anyway, as a parenthesis, if you read Romans 9, 10, and 11, you'll find out that at the very end, all the Jews and the leaders of the Jews believe in Christ. So that's what's coming. That is what's going to come. And that's good news. It doesn't come into this parable, but it is in the Bible. Unfortunately, we have to look at the sad parts here. The the story of the Jews is a story of sorrow, hated by all nations to this day. Um, Not us. I think maybe that's maybe the only reason God is kind to our sinful nation who does not deserve to be great again because of our great sinfulness Um, to be rich again and being great again are not the same, by the way Um, but if nothing else we are friends of Israel you almost wonder if that's what God says okay, I'll let you stay Um, but in any case, I don't know that's all just thinking out loud one thing I do know is that in this parable the king is God and he's angry at Israel Because they rejected him. And the ultimate rejection came on Palm Sunday. Jesus wept. And he said, you know, why was he weeping? He said, because Israel did not know the time of their visitation. What does that mean? The king came riding into town on a donkey. He fulfilled the scriptures. People were throwing their coats down and waving palms and saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's your sign. It's in the Bible. Your prophets told you that. That's your king. I don't know how history would have rolled out, but they were supposed to receive him as king right then. They rejected him. Turned him over to the to the goyim, to the gentiles, to the Romans who slew him on a cross. And that is the rejection of going to the banquet. We're not going to your banquet. King, we're not coming to your party, the Pharisees said. Are you with me? Are you seeing the picture? Not getting lost? Hang in there. So what was the result of the Jews pushing away their Savior on Palm Sunday? Well, the Lord did die for our sins. He did raise again. And then he said to the twelve... All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, into all nations and baptize in them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. This is, Go make disciples. That is the king hearing the report back in the parable. They don't want to come to your banquet. Fine, go out and get everybody else. And since then, since 33 A.D., God has been inviting the Africans, the Chinese, the Vikings, the Germans, the English. He even invites the French of all people. (laughs) He invites the the South Americans. He, He invites the people of Bora Bora. He invites the Japanese. He invites the Australians. He invites the Russians. He invites the Iranians. He invites everybody. Come to my banquet. That's what's all in this parable. Jesus, this is what the kingdom of heaven's like. Wow, what what was he throwing out there in the first century? Mind blowing truths. And here we see that in verse eight nine. Let's look at him again. He said to his servants, "The wedding feast is ready, but those who are invited aren't worthy." Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all that they found, both good, bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled. So the, the, the wedding banquet is continually going to be filled with people who are invited. You've been invited. When you receive Jesus Christ, you RSVP'd. I don't know what RSVP stands like for do you and you said yes I'm coming the only amount of people you can write on the RSVP for those of you who know what one looks like if you have kids you might have to explain it to them later because they don't know what an RSVP is but you can only put one you can't put four you can't put three you can't put two I'm bringing my whole family no you're not everyone gets their own invite you can only put one either you're coming or you're not coming well what if my husband doesn't want to come Are you coming or are you not coming? But I don't want to go with my husband. Are you coming or are you not coming? That's how Jesus approaches us. I've got the banquet. What if my sister doesn't come? Are you coming or not? And we say, yeah. And we send it in and we're waiting for the banquet. That's human history. So you can see how... I said this deals with national salvation, Israel, which will be saved in the end, and it deals with the salvation of the whole world, but I also said it deals with the salvation of every individual, the one on the RSVP, and that's this strange little thing that happens at the end of the parable, look at this, verse 11, when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man, one person, he represents all the individuals you can't just flood in and stay. The king's going to check who came in. Well, I was a member of first so-and-so church of first town, and, uh, and they accepted me. I don't care. I'm going to look you over, says God. When the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? He didn't have a good answer, so he was said to his attendants, bind him hand and foot, put him in outer darkness. Isn't it amazing how many times in these parables Jesus talks in images about sending humans to outer darkness, to gnashing, to hell. There is a hell. People will go there. And that's what this is a picture of. This man was invited, but he didn't respect the king. He didn't even care if he got dressed up. Jesus says only those who honor the son get to see God. You have to honor Jesus. The the clothing represent the fact that he was naked. Well, not naked. He had had the wrong clothes on. You you don't go to a, they just had this royal wedding in England. Big deal. I don't know why people get into those, but they must because the grocery stores, I read about it every time I'm stuck in a long line. I don't even care. But I do know this, even a Neanderthal like me who doesn't care about these things, if I was invited, I'd ask, what do I wear? And I'd spend whatever amount of money it took to get it. Because I, I wouldn't walk in there and not respect the royalty of that occasion, would you? you say, well, I would. You'd get kicked out. And dudes with the big hats would come and just say, out. <laughs> So it is if you think, well, I'll just get in. Why would God send me to hell? I'm a decent guy. Because you didn't believe in the Son. That's why. You didn't respect the Son. Well, I said I believe in God. I don't need Jesus. Then you don't go to his banquet. And you'd be kicked out. You see, God invites the whole world, but the whole world isn't allowed in. You must receive Christ as your Savior, have you? Look how Jesus summarizes this parable. Many are called and few are chosen. Okay, he steps out of the parable and he says, okay, many are called, few are chosen. I want you to think about that as you think about what I just told you. It's almost like he's saying that. This one guy comes in. He was invited, but he wasn't allowed to stay. Many are called, few are chosen. I've heard of some churches that their love for Christ grows uh, so you know, it's so lukewarm that it, many are cold and a few are frozen. <laughs> First church of the frigid air. That was a bad joke, but I, when else am I going to tell it? It's It fits. Many are called, a few are chosen. God calls the whole world, but only a few are saved. Israel, all, if you read the, the, the Old Testament, you'll see there's, God always preserves a righteous remnant. No matter how bad the leaders of Israel might be, there's always some. You know, one of the great stories of Elijah when he's crying to God, am I the only one left? And God says, no, I've saved a bunch. There's always a righteous remnant that he saves from Israel. Right? Israel had only one glorious generation. It was under Joshua. After that, it was always the minimum. And... And, and, and what about the whole world then? What about when he invites the whole world? Aren't they all gonna come? No, they're not, only some. Why? Because only some are chosen. Many people trip over the word chosen. The idea that God chooses some and doesn't choose all really bothers people. I would say don't trip over it. Why? You might be hoping I'll come up with a creative way to show you that it doesn't really mean chosen. But it does mean chosen. <laughs> but God shows us in the Bible. He, he's the one who comes up with words like election and predestination, predestined and chosen. I didn't make them up. They mean what they mean. If you're saved, if you RSVP'd, it's because God chose you. But people s- struggle with that. Because they think, is that fair? Look, you can't understand fair." If God were fair, we'd all be in hell, right? God does fair correctly. But if it helps, the Bible's also very clear on your responsibility to choose him. He always gives the choice to mankind and to individuals, right? He chooses, but you must choose also. To which people say, huh, how do I reconcile those two? How can it be that he chooses me and I choose? And some of them go here. They'll go, well, he chooses you because he knows ahead of time. Cute, but not logical. Because then he didn't choose you. He knows everything ahead of time. (laughs) He, in a sense, caused everything because he set it out that way. So even if it's knowing the future, he started the ball rolling in a way that you would get saved, he still chose. Well, then how do I reconcile the two? Let me tell you how I've done it. First, do not deny what the scripture says plainly. It says God chooses those who are saved, and it says everyone who's saved is responsible to choose him. Which one is not true? Neither, they're both true, or they wouldn't be in the Bible the difficulty comes when because we want a tight theology we erase one we erase the other don't erase either one and you say well I can't see how to put them together there's the issue isn't it do you have to see how they're put together for it to be true I don't know how they split an atom you can still split one I used to worry when I was a kid what if I'm cutting my orange one day and my knife cuts through an atom and the whole kitchen blows up well that's stupid I don't understand how Adams work. <laughs> I don't have to understand. The question is, if Jesus is true, if the Bible's true, they're both true, and one day when I meet him, I'm hoping he resolves that for us. I think he will. But let's write down this summary. We can happily invite everyone we meet to be saved knowing that Jesus died for everyone and that our invitation is real, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You don't have to say, he'll save you if he chose you. The Bible never says it that way. You don't have to say, you have the power to save yourself by choosing. The Bible never says that. But you can happily tell everyone in the world that you meet, God loves you. He died for your sin. You can be saved. You can invite everyone. They can all turn down the invitation or not. But if they will call on the name of the Lord, they'll be saved. You're not saved by being good. You're saved by trusting in Jesus who died to take away your sins. Don't be troubled by being chosen because if, you're, if you want to set aside the choosing part, what you're setting aside is the beautiful part. It's beautiful. To, how, how nice is this? Get a bunch of girls in a room and the most handsome, dashing, popular, intelligent, kind, gentle, and wise young man walks in and sees everyone in the room. And he goes, I'm in love with one of you, but I don't know who. Whoever wants me. Woman goes, I feel special. It doesn't work like that. You want him to come into the room and he's already got... Juliet, or Julie now, no one says Juliet, on his mind. He's already, got, he's already got Cindy in his head. He's already got Hannah, or whatever your name happens to be. He's got Madison on the brain. There's all these girls, and he goes, I know there's lots of them. I came for Madison. That's what chosen means. He came in, he looked at your life, the mess you made of it, all those things, and he goes, I came for you. I came for you, I'm not leaving without you, I love you. That means something. And that's what the Bible says. So be comforted that he planned you, for you, and he pursued you. Ephesians 1, 4 to 5. I'm going to show you a text that shows you each half of this conundrum. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He chose us in him before he made the world. He chose you. To receive Christ before he made Adam. There it is. You can't argue with it. We should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined. He determined. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. If you're saved Mr. Rogers was right. You really are special. <laughs> he was after you. He was the, you were the object of his affection. You go, me? Yeah, you. My brothers didn't think so. Well, they're stupid. It turns out you were right all along. But don't be shocked when people reject one who loves like this. And here we see the volition of mankind. Enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter it, enter by it are many for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. So here's Jesus talking to a crowd of people and he says, make a choice in your mind. I don't care what it takes. I'm getting in. Well, that takes a choice on your part. The choosing ones are chosen. <laughs> What about you? Are you saved today? In any any spot where you're worshiping with us at harvest, are you saved? Jesus crossed the heavens to find you. He died to save you. He planned on you. He invites you not to a stinky life, but to an awesome, awesome feast-filled eternity. Many are going to turn away. Most are going to turn away. What about you? you say, well, I've never been religious enough, Mike. Here, you caught me. I snuck into church with all these Christian people. And I know they're good Christian people. They've been perfect their whole lives. Oh, they pray all the time and they do good deeds. They're just perfect. To which I'd say, we have you fooled. But <laughs> even if they're one-tenth as good as you might think they are and you're not good enough, Jesus says this to you. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. Maybe that's you. You're not religious. He said, no. But afterward, he changed his mind and he went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I'll go, sir. I'm a good boy. But he didn't go. He went to church. He looked good, but everyone knew he was a hypocrite. Which of the two... Did the will of his father. They said the first, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors those will be thieves, and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. You don't have to be good to get in. You just have to be invited. Jesus Christ only brings in sinners, whom he died for. Many church folks won't be there. On church rolls throughout the world, throughout the years who will not be there. There will be pastors and priests not there. But that doesn't mean you can't be there. There's a song, Bound for Glory. This train is bound for glory. I like that song. I like when people sing. Everyone sings that song. Most of them are horrible sinners, you know. Rod Stewart sang that song. Lots of people sing the song. This train is bound for glory. This train, how many Any of you know that song? None of you do? One of you, two of you. Well, the this, this, this song is wrong. I like the song, the song's wrong. Because the song says there ain't going to be no gamblers. And there ain't going to be no prostitutes. And there ain't going to be no drunkards. and There ain't going to be no sinners. He's wrong. That's all it, that get on the train. Now by the time they get off that train, they're clean. <laughs> so if you're thinking I ain't good enough for Jesus, you're not. But he died for people who aren't good enough died for people were not good enough. When he comes, you want to be at that party. You want to be at that party. If- Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.